0: Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, April 20th, 2021 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, here to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you've never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to to you, and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation, or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone, to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is John Namath. As a teenager, In the early 1990s, growing up in the muddy potato fields of Idaho, John Namath was drawn to the hard-edged hip-hop sounds and rock bands of the day. Until a friend, Tom Moore, introduced him to the Junior Wells and Buddy Guy classic, Who Do Man Blues. Together, they formed Fat John and the Three Slims which is still regarded as a legendary band in the Boise area. John played harp and sang in local bands, often opening for nationally touring blues acts, and quickly caught the ear of established blues musicians. It didn't take long before he was releasing his own recordings, The Jack of Harps, 2002, and Come and Get It, 2004 featuring Junior Watson and Junior Watson's band John relocated to San Francisco in 2004 where he had the bittersweet good fortune to undertake a two-year stint with Anson Funderburg and the Rockets filling in for the ailing Sam Myers Namath immersed himself in the deep musical waters of the Bay Area, absorbing more of the soul and funk grooves of what he calls the early East Bay grease sound of San Francisco and Oakland bands. Soon, Namath signed a recording contract with Blind Pig Records. His national debut for that label, Magic Touch, released in 2007, produced by Anson Thunderberg, and featuring Junior Watson on guitar, received an ecstatic response from fans and the media and he was hailed as the new voice of the blues. In 2008, he was recruited by Elvin Bishop to do some performances and contribute four vocal tracks to Bishop's Grammy-nominated album, The Blues Rolls On. Namath released two more albums on the Blind Pig label, Love Me Tonight in 2009 and Name the Day in 2010, both hitting number six on the Billboard Blues chart. These recordings also began his long string of 20 at last count, Blues Music Awards BMA nominations. John has also won two Blues Blast Music Awards, Best New Artist, Debut Recording and the Sean Costello Rising Star Award. In 2012 John released two independently produced live albums, Blues Live and Soul Live. He relocated to Memphis in 2013 and teamed up with producer Scott Bomar and his classic Memphis soul band, the Bokies, to create a 2014 album release on the blue corn label of revisited soul classics entitled Memphis, Greece. The album debuted at number four on the Billboard blues charts. John won the 2014 blues music award for best soul blues male artist, followed by Memphis, Greece winning best soul blues album in 2015. In 2017, Namath released "Feelin' freaky produced by Luther Dickinson, on his own Memphis, Greece label. Drawing from his strong influences in blues and r and as well as contemporary sounds in hip-hop and rock and roll, Namath crushed all barriers of style and genre with an album of original songs that defied all the usual pigeonholes. Later in 2017, he was part of a side project, the Love Light Orchestra featuring John Namath, recorded live at one of Memphis's favorite watering holes, Bar DK DC. In 2019, Namath returned to Electrophonic Recording to create his 10th album, Stronger Than Strong, with his seasoned road band, The Blue Dreamers. The album demonstrated Namath's uncanny ability to skillfully blend retro and modern blues and soul into compelling music. That is both old and new. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to my musical universe and fellow Idahoan. John Namath. Hello, John.
1: How's it going, Craig? You doing all right?
0: It is going just great today. And it's super to talk to you and to have you on my show. I'm really, really pleased that you agreed to be interviewed for my podcast. You know, I have listeners that are from all over the world now. I I never envisioned this was going to happen. And uh, I have been to Memphis And love it. And I only spent like an afternoon there, but it was enough for me just to to love what I saw. And I recognize that Memphis is a very significant uh, musical center uh, And brought together uh, Many different uh, great styles of American music and I uh, so for my listeners some of whom may be unfamiliar. Would you talk a bit about the music scene in Memphis, especially you know, prior to the COVID-19 shutdown of live music?
1: Yeah, well, Memphis is uh, a live music hotbed. Uh, we have Beale Street, um, which I'm not for certain, but there's probably at least 15 music venues that have live music. Um, up and down the street. Uh, Music usually starts probably sometime in the um, mid-afternoon and goes all the way probably to 12 or one o'clock in the evening and uh, back in the day it probably went all the way to like four or five. And then we have um, an area called Midtown which is um, Another spot in town where there's lots of uh, live music venues as well. And then we have uh then we have like all the juke joints too, uh, which is great. We still have lots of juke joints, uh C and C Entertainment, the Blue Worm, Wild Bills, and many more. Uh mm-hmm. there's just music all over the city. It's uh part of it is because um Memphis is not uh, terrifically expensive to live uh, and so uh, and it's, it's not terrifically difficult to get around either. Uh, the city was uh, designed to have a much greater population way back in the 70s but after MLK was assassinated the city never really grew to its expected potential. Um, because of that there's no traffic. It's easy to get around, inexpensive to live in, there's lots of great studios, of course, here. Uh, that, a lot, that also brought in lots of musicians and, and to, uh, to uh, try to make money as studio musicians. So you had Sun Records, uh, uh, Royal Studios, uh, Stacks, of course um and you have new ones like electrophonic and Memphis Magnetic and then of course you have the famous Ardent Studio as well uh which were spitting out pop records you know and we're still cutting pop records here in Memphis and people still come from all over the world to make records here either you just your bands are using the studios or they're using local musicians to to cut these records, uh, everything from rap, pop, rock and roll, metal, blues, funk—you name it—the uh, city's still going. Um, even though, even though we've had such a uh, an, an issue here with the uh, COVID, um, the venues are still open. They're still struggling to get by. Um, and as soon as um, as soon as the country really wakes up to science and goes out and gets their vaccinations um, I mean, you know, we've survived polio, we've survived the measles and the mumps and come on people do you ha- how, how many times? Do you not read books? Do you not listen to the stories of old? The reason why we're still on the planet today is because of our science. And so if everyone would just get their vaccinations, uh, this brilliant, lively music scene will be able to return to to the way it was before. And all these uh, musicians will be able to... uh, go back to making a living and all the bands that would travel to Memphis to make their records would be coming here and uh, so basically we're just relying on uh, our fellow citizens to be cool Everything are be all right. Yeah.
0: well and that's what we, we we can you know hope for is that people are going to be cool about about cooperating and and uh, getting the vaccine. I mean, now that it's going to be available, you know, probably within another three months available to every adult in the United States. And, uh, so yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for that day. I mean, I, today is, uh, the one year anniversary of the last rehearsal I had. (laughs) Yeah. And And I, uh, I had a, I, uh, I'm semi-retired from the university. And uh, the state of Wisconsin has this really sweet deal that when you retire, after uh, a waiting period of, I forget what it was now, 85 days, I think, you can be rehired back part-time mm. as a rehired annuitant. Now, I don't get my old salary that I had when I was a full professor, I get the salary of an, you know, an adjunct uh, instructor, but but uh, I still get my pension, my social security, what little bit the salary, but more importantly, I'm still able to stay active uh, doing what I really love, which is standing in front of a band and, and helping people, you know, enjoy music. But yeah, our last rehearsal was a year ago today. And then, uh, of course, everything shut down uh, Yeah. in Wisconsin on the 17th of March. Uh, I'm aware of that. Yeah, oh, sure. We all yeah. are. You know, my I last
1: didn't... show was in, my last show was in, uh... gosh, I'm drawing a blank on the city now, but my last show was in Wisconsin, March really? 13th, March 13th, last year. Yeah. I'll be darned. And I had a gig in Chicago mm-hmm. that um, the promoter couldn't figure out what was going on. I mean, everybody was calling asking for refunds on their tickets mm-hmm. on the 12th. And the promoter got a hold of me a couple of days before the show and was like, I don't know what's going on here, but yeah. everybody wants their money back. And then we like figured out oh, well, it's got to be this coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so then I talked to the promoter in, uh, in Wisconsin, and he said that uh, he had one band cancel um, and asked me if I wouldn't mind doing uh, a double show. Mm. And so I, I said, yeah, sure, I'll do a double show. And so I went up and I did a double show on this uh, festival. Mm-hmm. And then we we're supposed to play Milwaukee the next day and that would cancel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's been gone. So my last show was in Wisconsin, March 13th, darn. man, 2020. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's, that's an interesting coincidence, but uh, well, I, you know, I have to ask you because uh, you know, your resume or your bio <laughs> resume, that's academic talk. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> same <Sorry>. same. <laughs> yeah,
0: same same. But your bio, you have a remarkable uh have had a remarkable career. I mean, you've played with some monstrous people and you've done some incredible things. Other than that last gig you played a year ago, what have been some of your most memorable
1: gigs? Man, well, that last gig was a real memorable memorable <laughs> gig. To tell you the truth, that uh I uh uh I had cut my record that the new record was actually cut in December and um, we were all getting ready to go out and tour the world with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, gosh, I mean, I had full European tour um, booked. I had a South America tour booked. I had a United States tour booked. I mean, things were getting ready to rock and the band, I mean the material on the new record was something that, it really just, it just was absolutely easy, effortless. Uh, played itself, connected every song, connected with the audience. I could run the record from the top to the bottom as a show if mm-hmm. I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the the last performance was like, oh man, just a killer band, and 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 a, and a trio backing me up. I hadn't, I hadn't. Um, I hadn't cut a record with just a trio in, uh, I don't know, man, over 20 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the chemistry of the band was really special. A bunch of young cats um, who are some of, the, some of the most promising best players in the world. They all moved here to Memphis to, to work with me because um, they were fans of my music before they, before they ever knew me uh so everything's just rocking and rolling man and so the last show man ah man just it just felt absolutely great um and then gosh talk about like shows you know that have like super memorable shows i mean man i've i did this one show uh it's the biggest jazz festival in all of europe uh and it's uh it's in San Sebastian, uh, Donostia, uh, the Basque country of Spain. Okay, and it was on a beach. On the beach, forty thousand people. And uh, and I I played I played uh, Donostia, um, probably three times before that um, over about a five year period. So had a lot of fans there. That was a special performance. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, gosh, another really, really great one, um, was in Greenville, Mississippi. Um, and, uh, I was, uh, filling in for a Mississippi, uh, blues legend, Sam Myers, um, big, big time singer. Uh, he was Elmore James's drummer way back in the day, mm. um. He'd switched to playing harmonica and singing and uh he had made probably i don't know 10 or 15 big records uh, with anson funderberg and the rockets mm-hmm. the texas band also a steve miller connection there um, and uh, anson was uh was neighbors with boz skaggs they grew up together and uh, so anyways i'm here i am uh, in, in anson funderberg's band uh, filling in for Sam Myers, and uh, we're going to Mississippi. And I think, let me see here. So I had, I had two gigs under my belt with the band at uh, Maristar Casino in Vicksburg, Mississippi, before I did the festival. And I got to the festival, and I think that was, that's that was the biggest full fledged blues festival. That I'd ever I'd ever been on before in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh the headliners were uh uh Bobby Rush and uh, Bobby Blue Bland.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Bobby Blue Bland, he had a full orchestra backing him up. I mean, man. And not to be outdone, so did Bobby Rush. <laughs> 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 and uh uh Man, the audience was so amazing, and I, uh, I remember going to Anson, and I said, hey, man, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, man, I'm a kid from Idaho, you know? I mean, I know I understand the blues. I understand how to sing it. I understand how to deliver it, you know? And, uh, you know, I understand how it's written, um, the point of view, and I, I asked Anson, I said, you know, what do you, uh, what do you think we should do? You know, and he said, Well, you sang Sweet Sixteen really great the last couple nights, you know, in Vicksburg, and they really liked it. And so mm-hmm. why don't we open the show with Sweet Sixteen? And if you can if you can pull that off with this crowd, then we're gonna be doing great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, okay, all right.
0: Well so, he he was he was gonna throw you from the frying pan right into the fire, wasn't he?
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. Talk about yeah. a baptism of fire to do sweet sixteen in front of an audience like that with the yeah. history of that tune. Yeah. You know, and by the guy who's from who's just from up the road, Indianola. Oh, Indianola. exactly.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And man, oh, you know what? Couldn't have couldn't have picked a better tune. Oh, good. Man, the audience was just, you know, you know, when I first met you, baby, you were sweet sixteen. Oh man, just the opening line and it's just like the just like the movies, you know, mm-hmm. everybody's just, woo. Yeah. You sing it, baby. You know mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. And, what a uh, thrill, what a thrill. Yeah. All the women were on it man. all the women were right on my side from the very top of the tune and, and, uh, it, it smooth. It went smooth. It went great. And, um, uh, and that was, uh, that was sort of my like introduction to, you know, an audience to where, like you know, I, I, I can sing this kind of music for anybody, you mm-hmm. know. Um, it was the easiest to sing it for the for people that grew up on on the mm-hmm. music. I will mm-hmm. have to say, you know, because mm-hmm. you know they're fans of the music; they know the material. And if they didn't know the material, if it was an original song, they still got into it. Like because mm-hmm. I write I write songs as though they'd be just like old blues tunes. Sure. And, um, I think still today, I think that would probably be, uh, one of the greatest audiences, probably the greatest audience I've mm-hmm. ever performed for in the United States. Yeah. Oh,
0: wow. You know, it's, it's almost like it's, it sounds to me, it's almost like, you know, you were, uh, you know, reciting, uh, it's almost like you know when a when a when a kid goes through his his uh, bar mitzvah, you know, and <laughs> has to re- and has to read you know scripture, right? And okay, and, yeah. and you're taught how to how to speak and read Hebrew and you know, and uh-huh. if you get it right, you pass. And yeah. if you don't, well, you got to go back and learn. it sounds like that was the acid test for you, as you <laughs> said, you knew how to yeah. you knew how to do, you understood the music and you knew how to deliver the song. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and that's, you know, and that's a great lead into my next question, because I, I have kind of a semi academic question uh, that I, I'm hoping you can answer, because I know, you know, from my ear and I listen to your music and and your particular your original tunes transcend the blues. OK, mm. I mean, there's still a there's still a strong element of the blues, but you bring other elements uh to it i mean and 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 mm-hmm. and, and 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 why not because we've yeah. got this incredible smorgasbord of sounds that are out there and they do yeah. impact uh what we how we listen what we write mm-hmm. and so on Yeah. but i the just for the sake of discussion is the blues an international style or Is it a regional style, meaning, you know, because we think the blues coming from the Mississippi Delta, Mm -hmm. is it a regional style that is imitated internationally? Now, I'm thinking along a couple of different lines here. One is that there are various pockets of blues styles Mm -hmm. in and around the United States itself. You've got East Texas blues, you've Mm -hmm. got Piedmont blues, you've got, you know, country blues, Chicago electric, Detroit, what have you, right? Mm -hmm. But we also have um, a lot of blues in England Mm -hmm. because the English course fell in love with the blues just like they Mm -hmm. fell in love with rock and roll yeah and so you have uh like well let's just take the rolling stones for example who Mm -hmm. who uh were very much influenced by uh the blues Mm -hmm. and even uh to the point where they wanted to record um uh at uh you know, the studios in, in Chicago, and there's that great story, you know, when they're unloading their equipment and a guy comes out to help them unload and it's muddy waters.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but, you know, so I'm thinking about, you know, English blues musicians. I mean, you could throw John Mile in there and mm-hmm. so forth and blues influenced English rock bands. So are they merely imitating or is there a, is the, has the blues become an international kind of style?
1: I think the blues is something probably that goes all the way back to the caves, okay you know I mean I think it's 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 as old as time, it's as old as understanding um, I think before we were before we were speakers, we were singers and we were grunters and hollerers and and uh whistlers. Mm -hmm. and uh you know we knocked on rocks and we knocked on logs and and uh we all came out of africa in the first place Mm -hmm. and i think um that is something that is undeniable in the dna i think uh it's blues probably is closer to um the human element than probably many other styles of music, um, Mm -hmm. although I think the feeling of blues is in everything, uh, in every culture in the world, uh, although it's languages, um, that separate the sounds. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think that's a big part of it. Language, you know, um, phrasing and things like that, um, uh, everybody has their form of blues and if they sing their form of blues in their own language, it sounds closer to blues than if they try to sing in another language, Mm -hmm. um, sing the blues in another language. Uh, and, uh, I think there's a certain pulse. I think it's locomotion and that that goes all the way back to like, you know, from the time we learned to stand up straight and walk on two legs. Hmm. And uh, it just goes, it goes all the way back. Uh, And then you get to the, the different styles and different sounds of it. Then you just get to like, you know, the cultural and regional things, you know? Um, I think uh, when you get to blues, like there's, there's blues like up in, uh, like in the northeast of the United States, those mm-hmm. blues bands, right? Mm-hmm. But Chicago players had been going back and forth there mm-hmm. performing and making music, so they brought that culture there. Um, and then there's that old-time English um, thing, you know, Baptist religion, you know, Pentecostal religions and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, and the language, the you know, corresponding to uh, some of the styles that were brought from the Chicago musicians who came from the South, Mm -hmm. who came up from Louisiana and Mississippi and Arkansas and Tennessee and Alabama uh, up North. Uh, And so, you know, there's all these tie-ins. So I think, you know, like a lot of the cats that uh, are up there in the Northeast, they have, they have a lot of the Chicago blues sound um, more than like maybe the low down Mississippi, you know, muddy waters on the acoustic guitar, but muddy waters on the electric guitar kind of vibe magic Sam and Earl hooker and that kind of thing. And you got the Texas blues cats. They highly influenced the California stuff. Uh, And they were highly influenced by uh, new Orleans music. Um, just different ways to shape it. Economy makes a big difference in sure. the music too. I mean, you know, the more sophisticated and educated um, the, the market is, the more sophisticated and educated the, the blues would be. So mm-hmm. in California, uh, like in Los Angeles and Oakland, um, port cities, um and uh, you know people can afford nice suits, dress nice, you know, buy nice guitars, uh, play in venues, um, that are different than uh, than they are in the South. Mm-hmm. So you, you you create sort of an uptown kind of blues thing, you know, T-Bone mm-hmm. Walker sound mm-hmm. and, and Johnny Guitar Watson and Gate Mouth Brown and. Those kind of influenced Lowell Folston and cats like that. Um, down here in, in Memphis, this the feel of the blues is still that of the feel of it back with Sun House, you know, and and uh, Robert Johnson and mm-hmm. Muddy Waters. And uh, the instruments may be, this, may be different, you know, but the feel of it is still the same. The way the, the feel of the backbeat is still the same. The placement of, of the one is still the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's great. You can walk up and down Beale Street and they could be playing pop music. They could be mm-hmm. playing Adele or Justin Timberlake or Michael Jackson or Prince, but it sounds like it would be a blues band playing. Mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, mm-hmm. and a blues band that is the is sort of the uh, pinnacle of what you expect it to be. It has, I think, um, the sound down here has more influence um, for various reasons uh, on the sound of the music and the longevity of the music. I think mm-hmm. that, you know this is sort of considered ground zero down here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The feel of it, it feels a little heavier. Mm-hmm. you know the burden's heavier you know folks weren't able to you know uh enjoy as much of the uh industrial uh revolution and and the prosperity of it mm-hmm. um, poverty is still a big issue in the south um, racism still a big issue in the south um and uh economic dis- you know separations and attitudes and latitudes and all of that i think it's 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 still a little more relatable and it's still in the it's still the undercurrent as mm-hmm. we know it i think that's a big part of it too uh, um around the world you know depending on your situation you know when things are tough and things are more difficult you know uh you'll have the musical sound like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, I used to show a video uh, in my, uh, when I taught jazz history. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a documentary um, based on a book by John Lomax called The Land Where Blues Began. Mm. But the, the most important quote, and I don't even remember who the artist was, said that you what you did was to get rid of the blues Mm -hmm. you sang the blues Mm
2: -hmm. in other words
0: the music served the purpose of being an emotional catharsis exactly because if you you know sang about your whatever your personal condition you know whether it was being poor or, or your woman just left you or what have you it was it was a way
1: of making you feel better -hmm. Yeah, and a woman's uh, gonna leave you for sure if you don't have any money. (laughs) You know, if you can't provide security. Yeah, and
0: and I I really enjoy that perspective that you offered. I, uh, you know, to think in terms about how primordial the blues very well may be, also maybe a testament to its appeal, Mm -hmm. and that it has influenced. So many other kinds of music. I, I know uh, the documentarian Ken Burns uh, was once quoted as saying the blues is the taproot of all American music.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, feel and,
0: that. uh, and I, th- you know, it's, uh, I think there's, there's really a lot to that and your perspective. Well, I'm really, I'm going to be thinking a lot about what you've, you've just said for the last few minutes here, because I think that's a, a very unique, uh, and a, a, kind of opening up my head a little bit. And so I, I appreciate you doing that. I'd yeah, like
1: there, a, I got one that Kurt, okay, Vonnegut, sure. Kurt Vonnegut said, uh, in uh, a man without a country is the name of the book. And he said, uh, the blues is the greatest, uh, the blues is our greatest gift to the world. And it's the only reason why anybody likes us.
0: <laughs> that's a great quote. I did. I've only, yeah, I've, I've read Kurt Vonnegut, but I haven't read that one. That's, that's yeah, a good one. I that's like a
1: biography that. autobiography. Oh,
0: oh, oh yeah. okay. Okay. No, yeah. that's, that's, that's
2: great. That's
1: great. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting how it gets all gets down to that kind of thing. You know, uh, uh you, you mentioned you mentioned the british blues players you know they were all coming out of uh, world war ii you know and the devastation you know of the country and uh i think people turned to that and i think cultures turned to that and i think at the time that was the heaviest feeling of music you know to be uh to be displayed uh was the blues, you know, mm-hmm. and so I can see why, you know, the British players, you know, the young folks who were trying to get over, you know, having parents without limbs or parents that didn't make it or brothers sure. and sisters and family members and things like that it was a real release. Yeah, so you're, you're well, right.
0: I think, I think you're, you're spot on, you know, they were so culturally devastated after world Mm -hmm. war II, that they were just, they weren't just hungry. They were starving for some Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, uh, stimulation, artistic stimulation. And I, I think too, as I've used to tell my students, the English have always been uh, probably even greater students of American music than Americans And maybe even greater appreciators, and I and I and I say that because and I use Robert Plant as an example. Yeah, because this is a guy that when he would talk, and he would talk about some of the stuff, even when what they did with Led Zeppelin, he'd he'd say, "Well, you know, a lot of what we do goes all the way back to people like Wynoni Harris."
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, now that's the '40s, right, Mister Blues, Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> recording at king records in yeah, in cincinnati, yeah, cincinnati you know and recorded Love with
2: it,
1: man.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, Good rocking the Night is, uh, uh, is you yeah. know, there's one maybe you should think about recording. Oh, I sang that one. Yeah, oh, I used man. to have a
1: jump blues band back in yeah. the day. We did that one, you know, Bloodshot Eyes, Love Machine, all mm-hmm. that stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, he would go on and talk about people like Wynoni Harris, and it would be like listening to someone who had, has read a history book. And then, of course, mm. he, the recordings he did with Allison Krauss- uh, you know, uh, more country and bluegrass kind of stuff really showed that that you had some chops for that kind of music as well as knowledge. So anyway, speaking of chops, you mentioned your band that you had recorded with the Blue Dreamers. Uh Tell me a little bit more about about those guys specifically, if you can.
1: Yeah, so the first guy to join the band was a kid named Danny Banks uh, out of... uh... Uh, South Boston area, uh, and uh, sort of a kid prodigy uh, musician, and uh, shoot, yeah, man, went, by the time he was like nine or ten years old, he's gigging, he's playing in bands, and his, his parents uh, were dance teachers, and uh, anyways, he's playing with bands, and And then uh, David Letterman hears about him, and David Letterman has him on his show. And not only does he play two songs, he plays two songs on the show. Uh, He also does a double interview segment with David Letterman. (laughs) You know, I mean, just absolutely amazing. Uh, The kid's such a humble heart, hasn't changed a bit, you know, and nothing ever went to his head. He loves playing blues, and, uh, you know, I wish he could uh, I wish he could make a lot of money at it, but uh, only the Brits have been able to figure out really how to monetize the blues. Um, and uh, so he's a killer player, and, and he sat in with me one time. Uh, we were doing a gig somewhere, I think in Cape Cod or somewhere, and he came and sat in, and I was impressed with him. And from that moment on, he would keep on hitting me up. He would say, hey man, you need a drummer? You need a drummer? I want to join your band. And so yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't want to have, I didn't want to, uh, back, in, back then I I, uh, I definitely liked to party a lot and wasn't the most responsible person. So wasn't ready for a child uh, to be in the band yet. So I put it off until he was old enough. I think he was 19 and um, he joined the band and uh phenomenal phenomenal just easy easy player man I um, mean mind reader, he knew my music, he would sing my music and play my songs in his own band and then um the next cat that joined the band right after that is a uh guy named matthew Wilson and uh his uh father and uh, brother uh and and uh or so So, let's see, his father, his brother, and his uncle, they all had a blues band up in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And uh, his father, talk about six degrees of separation, his father uh, was uh, one of the original drummers in the uh, Anson Funderburg and the Rockets group. And so, anyways, uh, Matthew joined the band, and I'd seen him playing with Nick Moss, uh Chicago blues guitar player. I, and I was always impressed with his play and I thought, shoot, you know, that if I ever needed a bass player, you know, I definitely consider that guy. He was available so and he wanted to do it and so he joined the band. And then um I had a few different guitar players uh that I don't know, I guess they probably just didn't they were getting homesick, they didn't want to live in Memphis. Um, and so I was looking for a guitar player and, uh, Matthew Wilson said, Hey man, I heard this young guy playing in the, in, in one of the opening bands on this festival and that we were playing on. And I said, uh, oh yeah, what's this guy's name? He said, his name is John Hay and I said, Oh, wonderful. I said, well, if you like him, man, you know, have him come on up and sit in with us. And so I had him come on up and sit in with us. and Because uh, I think that's kind of the way it is. With my with my band, if they, if they say somebody can play, they can play. Mm-hmm. And so I got this kid up to play. And it's like, man, I love the way he backed me up as a vocalist. I liked his stage presence. I liked his personality. I think he was 18 years old or something like that at mm-hmm. the time. No, mm-hmm. maybe 17? God, I don't know, man. He's a kid no 18 yeah and so then a few months later i uh i called him up and had him come on out as a second guitar player in the band and he did such a great job connected with the audience people were loving his playing as a player not just mm-hmm. as a not not that not the fact that he's a kid but the fact mm-hmm. he can play mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. and uh
1: and so then uh uh I got down to cutting a record, man, and I thought, you know what? I am just going to go into the studio with this three-piece band and cut this record. I feel completely confident in these individuals, and you know, that that they're going to do a great job. And uh, and they did. They did fantastic, and they'd proven themselves on the road on tours. I mean, we were lighting the world up, man. we were just killing it everywhere around the country and Europe. So we cut the record, got it out. And man, even in COVID times, man, the record just shot right up. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it wound up being the, I think the ninth top played blues record in the world. Uh, Coming out the second week of October. Wow. Yeah, and so like it, it right up there with uh, Shamika Copeland. Uh huh. I think she was like number uh, eight, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. her record came out around around the same time as my record did, mm-hmm. and we were like riding number one and number two for for months. And oh, wow. I had the number one record in Tennessee for sixteen weeks. Wow. With That's a great. song called Chain Breaker hmm. And uh, which is a uh, which is a song that very different point of view to write a blues tune. It's it, it's written as um, as uh, someone who is sympathetic to to uh, teaching um, folks that they can change their minds. Mm-hmm. but their programming isn't something that has to stick with them forever you know mm-hmm. so and basically it's an anti-racism song so it's mm-hmm. a blues tune written by mm-hmm. a white guy an anti-racist tune mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh it really connected um in fact it's actually uh nominated it was in a, it was uh entered into a songwriting competition by my label and it's it's uh, it's uh, in the finals for a songwriting competition. That track and uh, Come and Take It, uh, I have two songs uh, wow. in the international songwriting competition. I think there's 14 in the blues category, and I think there was 26,000 entries in the beginning.
0: Oh, my. Well, congratulations. That's <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, since you've brought it up, I, I'm gonna I, I was gonna ask you this later, but since let's strike while the iron's hot. Yeah. Tell me about your creative process. Uh-huh. Do you start with a melodic idea or a rhythmic idea or maybe a vamp or a you know set of chord changes? Or as in the case of this last song you were talking about, a mood or an image that you wish to convey.
1: Yeah, it starts with, the, it always starts with the story. Okay. Um, every song is a story. Okay. Uh, for me. Um, and uh, I think all all blues tunes are stories. And they could, all well, blues songs could be um, even like multiple experiences of the same story in the same song. Uh-huh. Um, and that's kind of what makes... Makes it interesting, like, uh, like Chain Breaker, the, uh, the song is sort of coming from different, uh, either different things that I've gone through or people I have known that have gone through the mm-hmm. verses. They make up different, they're, they're like a, it's a collection. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And that's what makes a lot of those blues songs so powerful in their writing. And also the uh, innuendo and the surrealism, uh, the picture that's created in the in, in the music, you know. So I try to create that as well. Uh, like, for instance, uh, uh, the first lyric, uh, first verse is, I've been fighting your dogs. I've been getting bit every day. They say, stick to your singing, Johnny, and you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. So... That's something I was dealing with where uh, you're hanging out with packs of racist people and nobody, you know, you're just expected to laugh at the jokes and you're expected just to carry on and not rock the boat and you can take your feelings back home with you and do what you want. But that's just not me. And I'm not going to be that kind of person, you know. Sure. I'll say, F all y'all, you know and mm-hmm. uh and i'll put my point of view out there and all of a sudden eep, the music stops and everybody's looking at you you know they don't know whether they're gonna kill you or you know and they'll start attacking you mm-hmm. and um and i especially think you know with uh the last president was drumming up all sorts of foolish dangerous uh sediment uh that uh was becoming a very a big setback and people were feeling that they could speak in ways that they hadn't spoke before in a long time openly and freely and uh, those were the dogs those were his dogs you mm. know he's training he's training people you know he's reprogramming people and so I wrote that that lyric you know and then there was then there was then there was the you know Uh, meeting somebody that goes to church every Sunday, you know, but yet after church, they could say whatever they wanted to, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, uh, um, can you hear yourself? Can you hear what you say? Or are you just crazy? Like a fool using your mouth to pray, using that mouth Mm -hmm. to pray. What a great lyric yeah so then it's like you know, okay, so you all go to church, but then that what do you learn in there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, and I mm-hmm. think with you know with gospel music and the for the black community to uh to become welcome into the country through religion, you know, and folks you know listening to the bible and following the teachers teachings of the bible and trying to be good citizens and doing everything they can and then there's this white privilege out there of folks that like yeah well you know it doesn't really apply to me Mm -hmm. and then i had another lyric um, where i used martin luther king you know the people of great character are struggling to advance because the color of their skin there ain't got a fighting chance so I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, we're going back, especially here in Memphis. You know, with up to of oh, past fifty years of his assassination. You know, yeah. and then you have to have a president that is like, you know, giving some license to people. You know, uh, and changing their minds. Um, yeah. yeah. And you know, people get after me as like, well, blues isn't a political thing. Oh no, it always was. <laughs> <bugs. laughs> you just didn't know it <laughs> you didn't know it from even 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 the people that owned the plantations didn't know because that's the beauty of writing blues yeah you know um also have like a line uh you say that i'm a criminal because i question your clan the constitution states that we're all equal man <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's like going back to the hippies you know oh well, yeah yeah and, but and,
0: But you're absolutely right. I mean, the blues has always had a a political uh, kind of bent to it, Uh, you know. I mean, even I, I, not typically a blues song, but it's a song that just came into my head. That was recorded by uh, Louis Armstrong. Why am I so black and blue, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, um, you know, and I also wonder, like, other songs, like, like, uh, to me, just my, this is my own personal take, my, the song that has one of the strongest pieces of imagery for me is Howlin' Wolf's Smokestack Lightning. Mm. Because when I hear him sing that, there is, and it's more than just about a train.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, it's, he's describing a train, but it's mm. more than about that. And it's not something I can always put into words, but it's just so, to me, such a visually powerful uh, statement. And, uh, you know, and songs about, uh, you know, captains and, and things about oh, that. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and the various overseers. And yeah. and so, yeah, you're, there's anyone who tells you the blues is not political is, is full of baloney. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. So would you say that it sounds to me like a lot of what has inspired you certainly recently has just been um, your observations of society and that in a way you're making social commentary in your lyrics.
1: Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I was raised in a house where my father, he came out of Hungary and he had to leave Hungary as a as a uh, as a revolutionary um, if he had stayed, he probably, they would have killed him or they would have put him in a in a camp somewhere to die. And uh, he left the country and he came to the United States. And uh, it was interesting for him. When he got here, he was supposed to be uh, sponsored by his aunt. His aunt, you know, he, he got a letter to his aunt. His aunt contacted the government. She's living in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. and uh, contacted the government and uh, did all the paperwork and was going to pick him up as he got off the boat. But uh, the Bunker Hill Mining Company needed slave labor to work in in, in the lead mines in Idaho. So they diverted the boat of refugees to Jersey and loaded them all on a boxcar train and didn't tell them where they were going. Mm. They were purchased and they were, they were sold to work in the mines and in uh, Kellogg, Idaho was on the middle of nowhere on oh, the border yeah. of Idaho and, and, uh, in Canada. Yeah. And, uh, after all of that, I mean, he was born at the end of in 28. So between world war one, world war two, and everything was a mess over there after world war one. And, uh, you know the Russians hung out forever, sure. uh, even after World War One, and then uh, the Nazis came in, kicked them out, and then had to deal with the had to deal with the Nazis, and then uh, and then the war was over, and then the Russians came in, and uh, the Soviets came in and took it all over again, and uh, and they didn't really have much places to go. The United States was going to be the most logical spot for protection and freedom, you know. And so uh, he came out here and he got lucky, you know, uh, because Mm. uh, Truman needed, uh, the Nazis had forced the Hungarians to build uh, uh, those autobahns for him. And so they knew how to use concrete, like especially like uh, Nazi grade concrete. And uh, build those roads and those bridges and things like that. And so he was really smart in mathematics. So, they, so he was schooled to be an engineer,
2: mm-hmm. even though
1: he was just a farm boy from out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, so they schooled him in that. And then uh, and uh, he came over to the United States. Truman was looking for anybody that had, uh, had knowledge in that. And was going to offer you a degree, and if you were a concrete person, they were going to offer you your papers to do to do work, you know. And they were, the government was going to hire you to build the interstates. And so he got a government job. Uh, he just he just left the lead mine and didn't wow. tell anybody where he's going. Gone. Wow. <laughs> got a, <laughs> got hired by a Navy Corps, an engineer guy to work for the state of Idaho. That'll be um, Yeah. Um, so that's that's interesting. I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but oh
0: well, it happens, you know, because we're just having, you know, like I (laughs) I like to tell everyone on my show, I said, We're having a conversation, this isn't an interrogation, you know, yeah, yeah, Yeah. it's cool. But I am interested in something, um, to kind of relate to uh, back when uh, you were telling me about uh, performing uh, Sweet 16, Mm -hmm. if you're covering. Either in live performance or on a recording, a well known blues song that has a long standing history. Do you feel an obligation to perform the song in a similar manner to the artist who originally performed or recorded it? Or do you feel an obligation to make it your own by doing it in a unique and new way?
1: I think at that point in time, I. Uh... I think the way the band played the music was that band played uh, so much like the uh, the famous uh, bands that recorded all of these records for this Duke Peacock label, which was uh, um, a conglomeration of uh, Memphis and uh, Houston players. Huh. Uh, it's so a Texas band, but there there's always been that connection with Tennessee and Texas as far as blues players go, especially with the hit makers Bobby Blue Bland and Little Junior Parker, BB King. So the band played like a BB King band. Oh, okay. man! Um, and Anson Funderburg's probably is some of two of the biggest influences: T-Bone Walker, BB King, and <sighs> Clarence Holloman and all those. Uh, all those uh, Bobby Blue Band guitar players and Junior Parker guitar players. So when I was saying that song for those folks, they played the song like it would have been B.B. King's band playing it. And when the band plays like that, it's going to pull you into that situation. Oh, sure. And it was interesting when I got that particular gig, I noticed that Sam Myers um, did a lot of B.B. King material. Mm. Uh, so about like almost probably every record had a bb king song on it you know and so i thought you know i'm going to get into bb king um by the by the time i was heard bb king i didn't really hear the old bb king material that much i heard like the later stuff where his voice and his delivery was that of someone who had done 365 days a year on the road <laughs> yeah. for decades yeah So I really couldn't, I couldn't communicate it in the same way that he could. Um, Mm -hmm. But I listened to his old music and it's like, oh, wow. I didn't realize exactly how his voice was different Mm -hmm. in the beginning. His voice in the 50s is a way different voice than it is in the 70s and 80s. Time had taken its toll on it and it had changed his delivery and uh so he had these hard falsettos that he would do mm-hmm. um and just like baby i wonder you know all that mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. kind of vibe and so i uh i would sing sweet 16 like a 50s bb king oh okay yeah and uh because it was a boy's voice it was young i was young i don't know i was i was i don't even know if i was in my 30s yet I was mm-hmm. still, a, still pretty young, and um, so I would sing in that band, and I would do the BB King stuff like that, fifty mm-hmm. style BB King. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I change everything. Uh, okay. Yeah, I change everything, and I before I before I got into that band, anyways, I would do my own renditions of things. I wouldn't copy harmonica licks, or I wouldn't copy anybody's bag i could really do a great junior wells and elvin bishop one time got me to do uh, a uh, a junior wells impersonation on a record
2: mm. for him
1: and it was great I, I even fooled uh even fooled the old chicago guys uh they, they, they didn't know it wasn't junior wells uh, i'm a big junior yeah, big junior wells fan junior wells was one of my uh i don't know i heard him when i was a sophomore in high school Back in like 91, and man, I don't know, that Hoodoo Man blues record, it became a favorite of mine, Uh, and he's a Memphis cat, he's a Memphis, born in Memphis, moved to Chicago, and uh, he's a cat that really resonated, I don't know what it was, it was, um, his bag was just so deep, his time was so so perfect he could take chances like i hadn't really heard too many blues singers take those kind of chances Mm -hmm. as a vocalist and uh he was pretty cool probably one of the most unique cats ever to do it and so i really got into that and he had buddy guy playing on the record who was a real badass um guitar player obviously and he had uh, this guy uh, jack myers who uh was a super innovative uh, blues bass player. Um, probably one of the most innovative, I think. Um, and uh, and then this uh, this drummer that played a lot like Freddie Below, who I guess Freddie Below was supposed to be on the original recording, but he couldn't make it. So they got another guy that could play like Freddie Below, a jazz, jazz player. And it was on Delmark, which was a jazz label. And it was the, I think it was the first actual complete um, release of a blues album from front to finish they weren't mm-hmm. collections of singles it was released as an album it was recorded mm-hmm. as a trio um and uh it's really got that energy it's wow it's it's really something else and that one always that one got me i probably listened to that record thousands and thousands
0: of times. oh yeah yeah well you know as i think about uh you talk about various people that you've played with, I've got a question that might be difficult for you to answer, but I want you to do the very best you can. If you could perform with any artist that you have never performed with, living or dead, who would that artist be and why?
1: I think, I think it would be Ray Charles. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it'd be Ray Charles is because Ray Charles, uh, he wasn't just going to mean mug you and look at you from what I've been told, you know, uh, because you weren't doing something right. He would stop the whole band and he would tell you how he would like you to do it. And, uh, dynamics is king. Dynamics is feeling. You know, he wouldn't have been the great vocalist that he was if the band wasn't following him, listening to him, following his dynamics, bringing it down, you know, and the arrangements, the way he would key things together with uh, with the band. And it was an interesting mix of jazz, blues, R&B, and the beginnings of soul. Uh I think his... His voicings uh, in the music uh, are impeccably cool, um, and he's another guy that took a lot of chances, man. When he sang, and he and he he succeeded on every one of them, yeah. you know, yeah, every yeah. time, man. The coolest, coolest cat, you know, ever. And um, yeah, I think it'd be Ray Charles.
0: Okay, well, I I tell you, I, I I've I've never had the opportunity to see him live. I've listened to his recordings, I mean, and. Yeah. Uh, I just think, uh, yeah, I think he was a great, uh, a great contributor to uh, American music. Well, you know, John, we're kind of at the end of uh, the, you know, our interview, but I, I want to ask you before we end, is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about?
1: Um, you can get my new record at johnnamoth.com. Uh, you can also get it, uh, on Amazon. Uh, you can buy it in uh, record stores. If they don't have a copy of it there, they can order it for you. I have a lot of other albums out over the years. I probably have over 20 nominations for different albums and have won a couple and, Mm -hmm. uh, also sign up on my email list on my website. So, or find me on Facebook so I can let you know when I'm coming up. To Wisconsin or wherever you may live, mm. and uh, wear a mask and get your shot.
0: <laughs> All right, well, John, I you know I would I would tell you as I will remind my audience that I do provide in my show notes links to your website, your Facebook page, and uh, you know so they can learn more about you than even what we've talked about and my show notes. I'll go up on my Facebook page uh, for the uh, musical universe of Professor Hurst, so they can they can access those. I'll probably I also not probably I also uh, will I, I always include a link to uh, one of your performances that's like on YouTube or something like Great. that, so they can Thank see you. and hear hear you and, uh, learn more about you because, uh, ultimately that's what my podcast is about is to, uh, educate, uh, My listeners and hopefully get more listeners uh, about all kinds of music, uh, you know, and uh, and uh, so I, I try to provide them as much information as I can. One more little tidbit that I'll share with you before we sign off, and that is there is another great Wisconsin connection to the blues and it's in was in Grafton, Wisconsin there was a recording studio there called paramount records.
1: Oh man, know all about it. Yeah. yeah. And,
0: uh, they, they recently have, uh, I know they were talking a lot about it, uh, in February, there was a lot of stuff on our news about, uh, because February was, was black appreciation month. Mm -hmm. And about some of the archival work and things that are, that are going on. And, uh, it's. It's. I've visited the site once, and it's uh, all there's left is just a historical marker. The old chair factory is gone, and uh, I. I understand some people still go and look around out there in the river.
1: Yeah, that's,
0: because that's where they threw the masters.
1: Yeah. You know? man but, uh, throw in the river what yeah, are you thinking well, man of all places to throw you're going to contaminate the river yeah <laughs> yeah on, but they people. they
0: didn't they didn't appreciate or think about you know because it was uh you know but anyway that's that's kind of an interesting the other thing that uh to make sure you know about is that Milwaukee uh, every summer has one of the largest outdoor music festivals called Summerfest.
1: I've played it. I played it. You have uh, played uh, Summerfest. Yeah, I played well, Summerfest like not last year, but the year before last year. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the year before last year, I played Summerfest. I played it 20 years ago too. Uh, yeah. Uh, with Junior Watson, and I played oh. the Paramount Blues Festival. Okay. As All well, right. um, and uh, yeah. Oh, I love that festival, man. Yeah, yeah, Music Fest is one of the best in the world.
0: And then right out here near where I live in Heartland, Wisconsin, every summer, the Rotary Club of Mm -hmm. of all people sponsor a blues festival.
1: Right on, are they going to do it this year?
0: uh, Well, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's because it's usually in August and Mm -hmm. something that late is going to be kind of up in the air. So Mm -hmm. I I haven't seen anything recently about Mm -hmm. this year. But I know like Summerfest is usually late June into into July. They've canceled it for that time period. Instead, it's going to be over three consecutive weekends in September because they feel like it'll be safe then. So, yeah. So anyway, but John, thank you. It was such, it was wonderful to meet you and to talk with you. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. And I want thank to you. wish you all the best for what I'm sure is going to be continued success in your career. And I'll certainly be be following you and watching for you as things go along. So all the best to you.
1: Thank you, Professor Hurst. We'll catch you later, man. All right. Take care. Yeah, bye. bye. Bye.
0: My discovery composer this week is Michael Torkey Born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1961, Torky graduated from Wauwatosa East High School. He studied composition with Christopher Rouse and Joseph Schwantner and piano with David Burge at the Eastman School of Music. Torkey also studied with Jacob Druckmann, at Yale University. His music began to attract attention in the mid-1980s as the New York Youth Orchestra commissioned his piece, Bright Blue Music, completed in 1985. Torkey scored a breakthrough with his composition Javelin in 1994, commissioned in observance of the 50th anniversary of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and performed in conjunction with the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. Michael Torkey's music has been commissioned by such orchestras as the Philadelphia Orchestra, the New York Philharmonic and the San Francisco Symphony by such ballet companies as New York City Ballet, Alvin Ailey and the National Ballet of Canada by such opera companies as the Metropolitan Opera, Teatre de Chalet, and the English National Opera, by such large ensembles as the London Sinfonetta, L'Ontano, and De volharding and such small ensembles as the Smith, Ying, and Emstel quartets. He has worked with such conductors as Simon Rattle, Kurt Mazur, Edo Devart, and David Zinman. Choreographers Christopher Wheeldon, James Kudelka, and Yuri Killian, and collaborated with such librettists as A.R. Gurney, Michael Corey, and Mark Campbell, and directors such as Des Mcnuff. Bart Scher, and Michael Grief. He has been commissioned by entities such as the Walt Disney company and absolute vodka worked with such soloists as Tessa Lark, Christopher O'Reilly and Joyce Castle and written incidental music to such companies as the public theater, the old globe theater and classic stage company and has been composer in residence with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Beginning his career with exclusive contracts with Boozy and Hawks and Decca Records, he now controls his own copyrights and masters through his publishing company, Adjustable Music, and record company, Ecstatic Records. His music has been called some of the most optimistic joyful and thoroughly uplifting music to appear in recent years, gramophone magazine. Hailed as a vitally inventive composer by the Financial Times, and a major orchestrator whose shimmering timbrel palette makes him the revel of his generation, the New York Times. Torquay has created a substantial body of works in virtually every genre. The all music guide lists five full albums of his work recorded between 1990 and 2020. That wraps episode number 26, my show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artists' performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Coming up next week will be my interview with John Tyler Wiley of John Tyler Wiley and His Virginia Choir, followed in subsequent weeks with interviews With Vanessa Peters Kate Coleman of the band run Katie run jazz vocalist and trombonist Aubrey Logan and All the way in Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada blues singer and pianist Sunday wild So don't touch that dial and stay tuned If you have questions comments or a suggestion of an artist Composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at hurstc at uwm.edu. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.